Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Welcome to this month's Church Times Book Club podcast. In this episode, Joe Browning Rowe talks to Malcolm Doney about her debut novel, A Terrible Kindness, which is this month's book club choice. It's published by Faber and Faber and is available from the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of £13.49. And you can read Malcolm Doney's essay on the book in this week's Church Times and at churchtimes.co.uk. You can sign up to receive the free book club email once a month at churchtimes.co.uk forward slash newsletter hyphen sign up and discuss this month's book at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash church times book club so there are two streams or two strands in the book Mm -hmm. embalming and choral singing are you any good at either of those (laughs) um no i mean i suppose i grew up not strictly around embalming, but I grew up in a crematorium. So the, the funereal business, as it were, feels very natural to me. And I have a lot of innate respect for it from a very early age. So I had to do a lot of research, but it was kind of in my blood, as it were. Um, choral singing, I don't know a lot about it, but I've heard quite a lot of it. And I've got friends who know about it. So again, um, a lot of research, but falling back on um, on hours of pleasure. So like you say, you grew up in a crematorium. So did that mean that you were kind of used to death and funerals and that sort of thing? It was part of the conversation? or Yes, I think the difference for me, for, for most people, is that it was a very domesticated thing. So, you know, quite literally, it was what put the food on our table, gave the home that I lived in. It was just part of my life. And we did have a big wide kitchen window and the funeral processions went past every 20 minutes so you know and when we were playing in the garden in the holidays when a, a procession went past because it went past the window we had to just not be very um, flamboyantly playing and energetic you know we knew it was we had to be respectful and so all that yeah it was part of it was part of life so moving on from that how, yeah. how did you end up becoming a writer um, well, a slow process, really. I mean, I always, I always knew writing was the thing I did best, in a sense. Um, but I, I never, I wasn't raised really to think that that was a possibility to be a writer. So I, I trained to be um, a, an English teacher and taught for a little bit, and then got into publishing. And so that really started to kind of fire all my engines again because I just loved, loved the process of getting alongside an author. And helping them to make something better. I just loved that and thought that was, that was my, you know, thing. That's what I do. And then when I was in my early thirties, I just had this very vivid dream and thought, woke up and thought, Oh, I could, this could be a story and tried to start writing a novel <laughs> and very quickly realized I had absolutely no idea how to do it. And it was a very difficult thing to do. So then I did an evening class. Um, whilst I was still working in publishing. And that was the moment when I just thought it was like all the floodlights came on and I just thought this is what I want to do. So then I, um, quite quickly after that, really within a year, I think I'd, um, I'd given up my job in publishing, gone freelance and then did the MA in creative writing. And ever since then, I've been earning my living by writing for educational publishers um, and teaching and trying to learn how to write a novel. 
And it was educational publishing that you'd been in before? Yes, yes. that's right. Yeah, so it was a very nice transition because I knew people and I knew, you know, I knew the world. And so I was able to to, to write things for that that market, as it were, quite relatively easily. So, I, you know, because I got contacts and I knew what was needed and wanted and, and still do today, still write for educational publishers. And what part did the EVA course have in your development? It was it was really um, fundamental because I think the main thing is you've had this you've been sifted you know and you've been deemed good enough to be on it and I think that just gives you this bit of of hope in yourself because you have to obviously deal with lots of rejection and lots of failure but you think I got on that course and I worked with these other amazing writers and I think it does help I mean there's no doubt about it clearly there's lots of wonderful writers you've never done an MA I wouldn't ever want to assume or imply you should do an MA if you want to be a writer but if you want to write and you're able to do it what a wonderful thing to be part of this community for for me it was two years because I did it part-time um, meet other people who want to write and I st- I've done some collaborative writing for the education market with some of the people I met on that course and and still in touch with them and you just yeah you enter the community of writers really I think that's the value of it. So You've obviously been a reader right from the very beginning, were you? Not really. No. no. I mean, I I'm one of the few people. Kit Duval, I I love her because she says she didn't read a novel until she was 22, I think. Um, and I I wasn't raised with loads of books, but then that that's the case for loads of people. But I never the library habit never kicked in and took for me. So you know, Dad had a couple of Dennis Wheatley books. My rebellious sister had a couple of Confessions of a Window Cleaner books. <laughs> um, and, you know, I read the, I did read the odd, you know, book in, in my free time in the summer holidays, but I was not an avid reader until, you know, I'd done a degree in English at Cambridge and I, I engaged with the text I had to, but I wasn't reading widely. And then um, after university, I went to America with my husband. I got married while I was still at university. And we, we had quite a lot of free time. We were youth workers, lots of work in the evening, late afternoon. And we lived next door to a second-hand bookshop. And I made this decision that, oh, right, I'm living in America for, it turned out to be two years, we thought it would be a year. I'm just going to read American writers while I'm here. And this bookshop, it just had the canon. It just had, it was a great little bookshop. And I just, I mean, not, not you know, exhaustively, but I just worked my way through all the great American writers and I feel like that was the moment when I started to read and I haven't stopped since and so I have this real default for American writers um, I mean I read, do read lots of others as well but I just love you know John Irving is my all you know just I could read John Irving any time. So I was going to say was, was Irving the big hit from that? From Well well, I mean, in a way, the big hit, because it's just such a joy for me to be in the world he creates. But I enjoyed all, you know, all, uh, lo- I mean, I read sort of from, you know, I didn't go really early, but I did read people like Carson McCullers as well and, and Hemingway and Faulkner and all that lot. And quite a lot of women. But I can't remember, what's the woman, the short story writer, the Southern woman, you know, the great, uh, a good man is hard to find. Yes, I know yeah, exactly who you mean. Yeah, it's gone. Her, you know, yes. so, so, um, but yeah, John Irving is uh, just the ple- sheer pleasure. I, I, I think I feel he lost his way a bit as he got later and, and not edited so much, but you know, so I haven't enjoyed his later ones so much. But there's something about the taste and feel of his worlds that I just love. Um, well, like a prayer for Owen Meany? That, yes, yeah. that would be my all time favourite, mm. I think. But I, yeah, I, I love them all. Hotel New Hampshire. I, I love, love them all, the, those early ones. Um, but, um, but also, there's an enormous nostalgia for me because I loved being in America. It was in the 80s and mid 80s. And so it just takes me back to that as well. So, any 
what are you reading now? I mean, one of the things that we traditionally do with these podcasts is to ask for a, a recommendation to our, our readers and listeners, uh, something that you're yeah. reading or something you would reckon that would be good. That one of the one of the lovely lovely perks of being a published writer is that I get sent proofs now, so I get these amazing books before anyone else has read them, and I just it's such a thrill. Um, and one of the, the books out now, but I got it before. And it's Audrey McGee's The Colony, which has been is long listed for the Booker. Um, it's a, an amazing book, um, a really amazing book. Um, so I'd recommend that. And then um, of course Bonnie Garmus's Lessons in Chemistry, which I love. Um, I think she's a she's a fantastic writer. The fact that that book covers some really difficult, important issues, but you're never more than a few lines away from a laugh or a smile. I just think the way she manages to do that, to, to, to be serious and important and yet so light and funny. I just, so I love that. So yeah, The Colony and Lessons in Chemistry probably. Although I've just read something great on holiday and I can't remember. Oh, oh, I've had the Barbara Kingsolver proof, that the, which is very exciting. Um, a phenomenal feat of ventriloquism in this book that she's done, first person narration of a young man, drug addicted. I mean, it's just phenomenal. I mean, interesting to see whether there'll be conversations around appropriation about this sort of an 80 year old woman writing about a, you know, a young man who's been in care and is uh, addicted to opioids, but phenomenal. Right. Yeah. So that's called Demon Copperhead. You may be still life. Uh, which I did. Sarah Women. Yes, that was another one. Yes, beautiful book. Read on holiday. It was terrific. Yeah. So good recommendations. So you got into fiction, but it was a while before this one came along. Yes. Um, <laughs> were, were, were there false starts or all sorts of things? Where... Well, I think I think I am a fairly slow learner. I think I'm a thorough learner, but a slow learner. And so I spent a long time working on another idea. I really did spend a long time on it. And I think I learned ever such a lot. Um, and it was when I was waiting for feedback. This the, the first idea had gone out to agents and I was just waiting, waiting, waiting. And that's when I started working on this, the, A Terrible Kindness. And um, and because A Terrible Kindness got um, shortlisted for the Bridport, there's an enormous incentive to get that one done. So then I, I switched to that one. Tell us what um, the Bridport is. It's um, it's a, one of the prizes for unpublished novels. Mm. So people who don't have agents, who don't have publishing deals, and it's a work in progress. So you start off by submitting, I think it's 15,000 words. And if you get through to the next one, you have to give them more. And if you get through, you know, so, um, so even by the time the prize is given, you don't have to finish the novel. Um, but... You know, it's just such a great, it's a, a great boost to confidence. And of course, the agents are interested. It's a, you know, it's, it's a bit like the MA. It's another good thing to be able to say when you're submitting. Um, but that was a, a huge boost. So, um, yes, but but many, many years before that, just trying to learn how to do it. Because <laughs> I'm amazed by people who can, you know, do it quickly and efficiently. I mean, young, there's a couple, there's a, um, a book on the long list for the book by Maddie Mortimer, Maps of Our Spectacular Bodies. And it is a stunning piece of work. And she's so young. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> you know, huge admiration and respect. But I, you know, I wasn't capable of doing that. <laughs> but I'm happy, you know, I'm where I want to be now. So that's fine. So was well, there anything particular that kicked a terrible kindness off? That Yes, because um, I wasn't, yes, I wasn't looking to write a book about Abervan at all. But I was, I was researching for something else in the University Library in Cambridge. 
um, which is one of these libraries that has a copy of everything in the world that's ever been published, or in the UK rather. <laughs> and um, I was reading conference notes of the cremation society's gathering every year. And because I wanted to find an article that my father had written, and I, I read that, and then I saw that there was an article called, um, well, it was just the, the Embalmers of Great Britain. And it sort of brought a smile to my face. So I thought, well, what, what on earth would that be about? And so I, I went to read it um, with a bit of a wry smile. And, you know, within about two or three minutes was in tears because um, it was about the volunteers who went to help at the Albavan disaster. Embalmers from all over the UK, they got the call, they drove through the night and they worked, you know, until everybody, every, every one of these bodies had been cleaned and presented for identification and then prepared um, for burial. And and it was just, I was so overwhelmed by what some people's profession calls calls upon them to do. You know, it was just amazing. Um, and, and so that was very much, I wanted to, it was their story I was interested in and what, and what the, the fallout would be for people. And so I interviewed two of them that had actually been there. Um, and I was mesmerized and entranced really by their heroism and kindness. So that was very much a starting point. It wasn't initially an interest in Aberfan. It was initially, it was about their role in it. So where did the other thing, the, the, the singing, the, yeah. the choral school and all that come in? It's a strange thing because I can't remember the moment where I thought, oh, that would that'd work well. I honestly can't. But I did always knew that what I wanted of this embalmer, a young embalmer who went, was that he was already broken. He had his own deep loss in his life. So I think I was always trying to think, what could it be? What could it be? And I also remember that whenever I go to a big choral performance and you see these little boys just stand up in front on in the high days and holidays of a packed international audience of strangers. And I always think, what if it went wrong? What if they messed up? What if you know? And they just don't. And I've talked to former choristers and choir masters and they just say generally, you know, these children are well trained and they, it's just what they do. But nevertheless, the storyteller in me always still thinks it, you know, just how dramatic it would be if something went horribly wrong. So at some point in the organic process of the story building for me was this idea that he'd something had gone wrong for him. He was a gifted chorister. Something had gone horribly wrong. And it meant that his relationship with his mother was fractured horribly. Um, and so I can't remember exactly how it all came, but that, and, and I knew, I knew quite a few people who were choristers here in the fifties and sixties. So I knew I got easy access to stories and, and in fact, the, the one guy, um, who I spoke to did really become the character of Martin in the story. He's the best friend of my character. And all the stories of the naughtiness and the shenanigans were all directly from him. <laughs> so now in, in telling the story and interweaving the, those two strands, mm-hmm. is a very interesting structure in the book of sort of holding information back and mm. putting it forward and the reveals and so on. Was that part of the evolution from the very beginning or, or, or did that come after you had that overall arc of the story? Yeah, no, the structure of that was was the biggest wrestle. And I think it always, the structure of a book, it will always be the biggest wrestle for me because I knew, I knew that I wanted to withhold what it was that had gone wrong. And I think that's just because, because some people say, oh, it's teasing, why do you want to do that? And it's just my pleasure in a reading. You know, when, when I read a book that is sort of character-led and well-written, but there's a page-turning element, to me that's, that's catnip. It's just everything I want from a read. So I think maybe that's just why I wanted to do that. Um, but so, so I knew I was going to be jumping between the timelines. But, um, in the interim between 
being shortlisted at Bridport, part of the prize, as it were, was that you could get your manuscript looked at for cheap by the illiterate consultancy. Um, so I did that. Um, and the feedback was all, um, well, no, actually, they really liked it. And so then they say, we send, when we think it's a really good manuscript, we send it out to agents on your behalf. So I thought this was the golden ticket. Mm. Um, but the, the, the feedback from the three agents that saw it were, we really like the writing, we like the subject matter, but it jumps around too much and the structure's not there. And so I thought, I need to listen to this. It's a really important thing, I think, to learn to listen or just to be, you know, humble enough to listen. Mm. <laughs> so I thought, this is what I need to do. So then I spoke to another friend who's a very good structural editor and she had a read of it and talked to me about where she thought the problems were. And so then I had six months of incredibly, this is just leading up to the lockdown period, really intense editing of just felt like I was ripping it all apart and putting it back together again. But I did feel, oh, this is working better now. So, so you know, the idea was to start with the dinner where he gets called to go to Aberfan, go all the way through until the disaster's ended and then and then do a flashback and start telling the story again. So rather than jumping to and fro and to and fro, I'd basically do two chunks mm -hmm. and then come back to Aberfan at the end. Mm -hmm. um, so the structure, it was that was what would have made or broke it, basically, whether I could nail that. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just hard work, really hard work. And William, the, the main character, is, is, is amazing boy, man, yeah. his own worst enemy in many yes. ways. Uh, yes. How did he develop? Yeah, he's, it's funny because I, for ye from years of helping with literary festival and interviewing authors and also going to literary festivals and listening, there's two things that used to get my goat about authors. And one was when they would, they would suddenly talk in this mysterious way about, well, this character just appeared to me and mm. he turned around and told me that he was, you know, mm. I don't know what. And I had no idea. And, and they do it in this mystical and it irritated me. <laughs> and it still does, because I think the thing is our imaginations are amazing and unfathomable. So things do happen, but it's basically it's our imagination. It's not mm. some sort of, you know, dropping of the muse. So this one, um, I understand now because William, you know, he did seem to appear to me fully formed. I just felt I knew him from the first imagining of him. He just, he just seemed like a person that I knew and I understood, you know. I knew that he, he just was his own worst enemy, exactly as you say. And I just felt that my job as his author was to get him to the end of the novel where he dealt with enough of his stuff to be able to live his life more fully. Because, at the, at the, you know, for much of the novel, he just cripples his own happiness because he can't deal with the difficult things that have happened to him. So that was my job to sort of do that. But he did feel, he did feel like he sort of arrived although I fight that sort of talk. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I would just say is that, because I said there's two things that got my goat. The other thing is when authors very coyly won't talk about what they're working on at the moment. Um, but again, I completely understand that one now because when you're working on your next one, you don't know if it's going to work and your editor hasn't seen it and your agent hasn't seen it. So how can you possibly talk to an audience of people? So I understand that one as well now. There are two pieces of music which echo through the book. One is Mifanwi and the other is um, Allegri's Miserere. Mm -hmm. At what point did they appear? Yeah, they they sort of felt... In, well, Miserere was inevitable because um, I did listen to it when I was seven and I was told this is being sung by somebody roughly your age and it blew my mind, mm -hmm. you know. A, I think the music... Because I'm not... I don't know a lot about classical music, but it's so obviously beautiful I think you know and and then to know that it was a this sound as a child you know so and I'd listened to it a lot over the years and in Cambridge you can listen to it on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday in different colleges and I've done a lot of 
listening to it and I just adore it so that and it is the big solo to get so because I knew I wanted something to go wrong for William singing it had to you know it was the one to do so that was kind of obvious. Mavanwi, I heard a soul music, Radio 4 soul music oh, yeah. about it. And there was a heart, and it was when I was writing the novel, and there was a heart-wrenching story of one, um, he was a rescuer at the van, Welsh, and he saw a child's hand sticking out of the rubble. The child was dead, but he held the hand and sang Mavanwi. And I just thought, oh gosh, you know, that, that belongs, it so belongs there. So It's like it's given to you. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, so those were the, yeah, those were always going to be the two. And interestingly, at one point uh, in the book, you, in dealing with the miserere, you you more or less write the words out. The, 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 yes. Why were the why were the I won't hesitate to call them the lyrics, but <laughs> yeah. why why was the, the why were the words so important? Well, at that at that point that you're referring to, I think is when he is finally reconciled to his mother, mm-hmm. um, and the it just seemed to me that because originally there's two big reconciliation scenes towards the end of the novel, and when I first submitted to my agent, they were just the people involved just sat down and had a conversation, you know, and explained why why they thought what they thought and why, you know. And my agent said it would be so much better if you could have something happen and let the reader will understand. You don't have to explain it or just let something mm. happen. So when he went to see his mother, I quickly, and I won't say what it is for people who haven't read it, mm. but there was an event that I thought could happen between the mother and son that would signify that. But... Um, because their rupture happened during the miserere, I thought if that could be on while they're doing this this thing, and then it just seemed to me the lyrics were so appropriate to what was going on between them. So it just felt again, it felt like another gift, really. So mm. to to have it on in the in the background, and it is nice how many people who've read the book have said they've gone to listen to it and didn't know the music, but have listened to it now, and so that feels a good thing to have given to people. For me, one of the richest episodes in the novel is that whole section about the midnight choir in Cambridge uh, which is you know this choir of 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 down and outs and mm-hmm. broken people where did that come from and well that that did come from um the church that i belong to in cambridge where we do quite a lot of various things um, for the wider community and for vulnerable people in the community who are have been have been homeless or um have various vulnerabilities um and there there we have done singing um around that and also there is a member of our congregation who is completely deaf um but loves to go to the choir practices he doesn't sing a word he stands there and he looks around and he you know he'll get up for the performances and he doesn't sing a single word but he feels part of the choir um so he was you know a lot of our congregation have recognized him in the novel <laughs> um so yeah so it's partly my community experience that um that yeah, that fueled that that aspect of the story. But why was it important, do you think, to have that as an ingredient in the book? Well, I think that, um, yeah, well, for my main character, because of the painful experience he had, he cut music out of his life. Mm. And that really was like, you know, cutting part of his heart or soul out, really. And he just wouldn't sing, he wouldn't listen to music. And so this was the, him limping back, as it were, to, to his fuller humanity um that he he has to you know his friend says you can stay with me but if you stay with me you have to help out with the choir mm. and he didn't want to but just be it's the um the humanity of these people that he could connect with when they were singing together 
Um, so I think that that's an important, you know, an important part for him to realise um, how it was important for him in his humanity and the, the respect it gives to these people to be able to sing about life's experiences, even if they're, you know, in a bad place at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you talk about humanity, but it also strikes me that the that music is the kind of vehicle for spirituality in the book. Would Absolutely. You, would you agree? Definitely, or? and definitely. And, and I think, you know, when I talk about sort of humanity in its fullness, then that is a spiritual thing, you know, and I think so they, I wouldn't separate them really, but definitely um, that there's that aspect of our souls that can be both fed and expressed through music in a very special way. So that's true for you, would you say also? Definitely, definitely. I mean, again, I'm not a brilliant, um, I haven't got a brilliant voice, but I do regularly sing in a choir. Um, and I think there's something, there's something incredibly wholesome and freeing um, about, about doing that with other people. You've obviously done quite a lot of research, certainly in the music and mm-hmm. talking to people and so on. Oh, embalming is a very, very <laughs> technical area. What did you yes. did you do some physical research I with that? I did. I did. I was incredibly fortunate that I, I'd spoken extensively to these embalmers who had been at Abervan, um, and they'd been incredibly open and honest about it. But I didn't feel I could keep going back to them for detail. It didn't feel appropriate. You know, one of them hadn't spoken about it in forty years. You know, ever. Um, and so I thought I didn't want to keep you many saying, you know, when you said you put formaldehyde, you know, I just thought I need someone else. So I found another person who'd been an embalmer at that period and he was very happy to ping emails to and fro. But I knew I had to I had to watch while I knew I had to do it. And I was nervous because I do faint. And um, <laughs> But I thought, well, I'll just plow it back into the writing if I do. Mm. Um, but I found this wonderful um, um, James Skeets. He's an embalmer, third generation embalmer. Um, near Cambridge and I went and had a few chats with him and he was brilliant because from the first the first time we talked he didn't just talk about the process he talked about the emotional impact of doing this work and it's considerable you know he said most of us are on antidepressants you know most of us have lost our faith or and found it or found it and lost it you can't do this work without all that getting stirred up for you so he said I hope you're going to put that in there you know so he was great and very funny as well you know, told me all sorts of stories. And then after our third meeting, I said, can I actually come and watch an embalming? And so he had to ask um, his sort of manager, as it were, and they initially said no, because there was a concern I might be um, uh, a journalist trying to do an expose and, you know, uh, but then eventually they said yes. And typically, kindly, they'd put a great big leather armchair in the room, in the morgue, in case I felt in case I came over <laughs> faint and I could collapse onto it. But I was, and I put this into the story, really. It was extraordinary because the minute that they'd made the first incision into the old woman's neck where they put the tube to drain the blood out, no blood, you know, you cut into the flesh and no blood spurted out, mm. which is what everything in you expects to happen. Mm. And from that moment, I something in me relaxed. And I thought, this isn't a human body. It's not an alive human body. It's a different thing. And so I felt I could watch it. But nevertheless, I was so moved by the tenderness of the embalmer and how he talked to this old woman. I remember now she was called Marjorie. And he talked to her through the whole process, so much so that at the end of it, because it is frankly very invasive at times. <laughs> um, but, you know, she was dressed and in the coffin and her hair had been done. And she just looked... She just looked like herself, which is funny because I didn't know her. But, you know, at the beginning, she looked like a cadaver. And at the end, she didn't. She looked like Marjorie. And I found myself saying, all done now, Marjorie. And when I said it, and he just looked at me, there was this moment of connection. He sort of 
got that I got what he was trying to do, as it were. So, yeah, so I was very pleased with myself for not fainting. But, yeah, it was, I was really struck by the respect and tenderness with which he worked. Mm. And human dignity in death is very much, a, not exactly a subtext in the, in the book, but it's, but it's part of it. Is that something that you learnt through that process? Or I think, yes, I think learnt growing up in the creme and seeing the attitude of the, the the undertakers and all the professionals that I met then and then and then it was completely sort of endorsed by them my experience of, of the embalmers yeah and the book's been a roaring success yes hasn't it? yes it has yes so bestseller list and um yes and it's going to be adaptive for television which is very exciting so yeah, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have asked for more and to be published by Faber. You know, it is like I just kept getting more and more icing on the cake, so much icing on the cake, I can't get my teeth through to the cake. <laughs> it's just great. But now it's about just um, trying to find the equilibrium in my new life and trying to write the next one. And, you know, so as ever, there's always challenges, aren't there? Whatever, you know, whatever position we find ourselves in, there's always something that will, um, yeah. Before, before we get onto what you're mm. doing now... The TV thing, so the TV rights or the screen rights have been bought, is that right? Yes, yes. So, um, so it's um, Bad Wolf Productions um, who did the, his Dark Materials and all sorts of things in Doctor Who. And, that, and the lovely thing is they're, they're based in Wales so, and they're very committed to, the, you know, to, to their, their Welsh connections. So um, I think they, they said it would be nice to let Wales be Wales and not trying to turn it into a different planet. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so very exciting. So that'll be a series? Do we know yes, how many parts? Or? No, it'll be a minimum of five, but it, it might be more, but I don't know yet. So. Will you write it or will you hand it over? They did ask me and I said it's taken me 20 years to learn how to write a novel, so I suspect it's better if you get on with it. And so for me, because I trust them and they're so good, it'll just be a joy. But I do get to approve each episode. Um, so I'm technically called an executive producer, so I get to approve each episode and I will have a say in the casting. Mm. They did say, not fine or say, but I'll have a say. So it would just be nice. It would just be exciting to be involved. And, and part of the success and the big readership that you've had, how, how, do you know how, what, what the sales are at the moment? Well, I think um, the last time my editor spoke to me, she said she thought it was around 45,000. So. Which for a hardback novel is yeah. pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, it's bonkers. Have you had personal responses from readers? Yes, a lot. And I think this is where social media is great because I, you know, get a lot and yeah, it's just a lovely thing to be able to, when people take the time to say um, why something has, has particularly moved them or meant a lot to them. And so that's a lovely, lovely part of my days now of responding to people and thanking them. And you're still tramping around the country doing readings and signings <laughs> and uh, yes. any, you're coming to... Greenbelt Festival. Yes. At the yes, end of August. Very much looking forward to that because it feels like home ground because I've been going there since I was 18. So, and I've interviewed many an author there. So that would be lovely. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And then I'm going to Edinburgh just a few days before that. Yes. And I'm, yes, I've done, I'll have done eight festivals sort of during this, the season. So that's just a thrill just to meet people who they want to like it. You know, they're not, yeah, they're not wanting to pick holes in it. They're wanting to have a nice experience and meet an author and and listen to you talk about it and it's great because you don't have to prepare because you know about it already it's just so far I mean there could always be difficult situations I did have a strange situation in um, Cardiff when I went because first of all there was a survivor from Aberfan there which I you know which of course felt really big 
Um, but then also an ex-boyfriend I hadn't seen for 40 years. <laughs> that was a shock. So, <laughs> so there's an element where you always think, oh gosh, you know, is this the, is this the occasion where someone's going to stand up and say something, you know, shocking or critical or there's, you know, you, there's a vulnerability to standing, obviously, but, but being in front of an audience that you don't know. But so far I've had a great time. And in the middle of all this, you, you've got to write this difficult second yes. novel. <laughs> and yeah. I know you just said you you can understand now why people don't want to talk about it. Can yeah. you can you tell us anything at well, all? What I, yes, what I think is quite interesting to say in comparison is that the a terrible kindness sort of is seventeen years in its span. Um, this is six weeks. So the the thing I'm trying to write now that I hope will work and I hope will see the light of day takes place in 1973 in the six week summer holiday. Um, so that's a very different experience. So because you know, every day, as it were, has to be accounted for and has to try and make sort of work in the plot. And it's a, there's a really condensed, tight feel to it that I didn't have writing the first one. Um, so I don't, I don't know how I'll manage it. But it, in some ways, it's easier because I've just got literally six weeks, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, and I'm just saying that happens then, that happens then. But it's whether it will feel it's all a bit rushed and whether the imposition of saying it's all going to happen in six weeks holiday is something that won't work. I just don't know. So I'm just getting to the end of this draft and, and have a have a think. Is there a particular reason why it's 1973? Um, because my character is born in 63 and they're 10 years old when the story happens to them. So, yeah, <laughs> that's all again. <laughs> well, that's a good point at which to end, I think. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.